If there is a theme of today's show, it is connections that help us be our better selves, be productive creators, and find a little love in our lives, and that there are many routes to get there. I am Suzanne Lang, bringing you a novel idea. Today we visit with authors whose titles suggest self-help or how-to books, but they defied my expectations in that they are challenging, refreshing, and uplifting storytelling with good information, no matter your situation. In a few minutes, we'll talk with Perry Chickering, whose book is Leadership Flow, The Unstoppable Power of Connection, and the leadership to which she refers is that which lies within each one of us. Perry has spent over 35 years guiding others through the wilderness and coaching people on life and professional changes through her groundbreaking work with Outward Bound and Dialogos to help others identify their inner courage and intelligence. Later in the show, we'll talk with Carolyn Lee Arnold, a writer, a researcher and statistician, and sex-positive advocate. Her book is Fifty First Dates After Fifty, a memoir. I expected something fluffy, but found something much more emotionally raw and challenging. Both of these writers have been published by She Writes Press, which you may recall me mentioning on previous shows. We'll start out today talking with Brooke Warner, founder and publisher of She Writes Press. Stay with us. It's a novel idea. Brooke Warner is the publisher of She Writes Press and Spark Press and president of Warner Coaching Incorporated, where she specializes in helping writers get published and has shepherded hundreds of books through the publication process. Here is our conversation together. Welcome to talk with me today. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah. Over the past few years, we have featured, and I counted them up, and I couldn't even believe it, 17 authors published by She Writes Press. Oh, wow. (laughs) And there's really nothing in common between these individual authors other than they are women and they're published by She Writes Press. So why don't we talk about that? Let's talk about the operational model and and really the mission and philosophy of She Writes Press? Yeah, it started because I come out of women only publishing. I worked at Seal Press, which is a Bay Area feminist press that has since been absorbed by Hachette. Uh, But I had an amazing experience there and worked there for almost nine years. And so when I set out to start She Writes Press, I came to it with that foundational experience and really wanted it to be a a woman-only press. Tell our listeners why that is so important. Well, I think that it stems from how women are together in community. I would say that community is a real linchpin of our process and we encourage the authors to know one another. We have a secret Facebook group. We have retreats. Authors do panels together. And I think publishing is historically such an isolating kind of experience and no one really knows what's going on and people are not encouraged to share with one another. And we 
started out with the opposite kind of orientation. And part of that was about women supporting women. Part of that was about the fact that SheWrites.com existed first. SheWrites.com was a women's community, started as a women's salon. And there was always a real ethos there that women support women and that we all do better when we are in community and kind of sharing, not just writing our books together, for instance, but really sharing industry know-how and how things work and doing better as a result, because you are, you know, you have like a, a shared experience and other people supporting you along the way. And universally, the authors that I've spoken with have talked about that community, about the level of support that they get, whether they are experienced writers or first time book writers. And that in itself is something that uh, it seems like this model that you've created there really nurtures people and gives authors a sense of confidence in this industry that maybe they know nothing about. Absolutely. That has been the effect. I don't think I necessarily imagined that was its it wasn't its original intention. My intention was always just transparency. I wanted the authors to know one another. I wanted people to be in touch and to support one another. And I think the result has been absolutely that the nurturing and the confidence. And I knew how isolating an experience publishing could be, but I didn't realize until after we were so communal that that would be oftentimes the thing that writers would cite as the one of the most beneficial parts of the experience. And you also help with not just editorial support, but cover and, and layout and design of a book. And this has been called a hybrid model of publication. So could you describe for us what is this hybrid model? <laughs> yeah, a, a hybrid publishing company is a somewhat new animal. Uh, we, we've called it third way publishing because it's in between self-publishing and traditional publishing. We really do function like a publisher. And so in every way I have modeled how we operate uh, after my time at Seal Press, as I mentioned, because I was there for a long time and I was in traditional publishing for 13 years. But the primary way in which we are not like a traditional publisher is that the work is author subsidized. The authors get a much higher royalty. And so most of the authors who publish with us understand that they're coming into a kind of entrepreneurial model. And we not only offer support, I mean, we really are functioning as the publisher. We have a creative director, we do the covers, we do all of the production parts that a traditional publisher would do. And importantly, we have traditional distribution, which is a real game changer. And that allows us to really play in the same sandbox as our traditional counterparts. We have a sales force, but so it's hybrid because it's sort of blending two different models that you know, historically in publishing have sort of stayed separate. You you said something that just caught my ear about that you are part of a like larger distribution 
mechanism that if I self-published a book, I would not have access to. And I think you just called it a game changer. (laughs) And um, that seems to really disrupt this conventional publication industry that is so hard for many authors to break into. Yeah, absolutely. It does. I, we talk about it as leveling the playing field because it's so difficult to break into traditional publishing for reasons that have nothing to do with the actual content of the book. In my time in book publishing, you know, 22 years now, I've seen such a shift toward the valuing of celebrity and author platform and who is the author and the marketing and how many people are they bringing and not really considering first and foremost, the content, the story, the actual, you know, part that brings writers to the writing in the first place. So that was really what I started She Writes Press for because I was getting so disillusioned in the traditional industry by the books that I was having to reject because the authors were not bringing with them an existing author platform. Uh, And then as soon as I started it, I realized what we were lacking and that was distribution. And so I think because I came out of traditional and saw that hole in what we were trying to do, I started to piece it together and say, you know, yes, we can have the best of both worlds in essence. And, And I absolutely think it levels the playing field. You know, what feelings other people have about that, you know, traditional industry folks and or self publishing folks varies widely. (laughs) You know, some people don't like it. Some people think it's great, but I think the point is that there are lots of different ways to do publishing and there's room for lots of different business models. Brooke Warner of She Writes Press. Brooke, is there anything you might want to leave our listeners with about She Writes or about the authors you work with and have come to know there? Well, just to remember that there's a really thriving indie landscape of authors out there. And whether you're an author looking to find a home or whether you're a reader looking to find more diverse experiences in books, I think seeking out indie authors and being curious about the landscape of indie publishing really serves authors and readers alike. Well, thank you so much for working with all these authors that we've enjoyed talking with and reading their books. And thank you so much. Thank you. Brooke Warner of She Writes Press, publisher of both authors we're talking with today. Perry Chickering dispels almost immediately that her book, Leadership Flow, The Unstoppable Power of Connection, is for managers or CEOs, though she has worked with many of those people over her professional life. This is a book to help us identify our own potential as human beings. We can be leaders, especially in our own lives and the decisions we make for ourselves. Here is our conversation. I feel like I know you simply through the voice in your book. And the book was a joy to read. And you talk a lot about joy in the book. And you are in direct conversation with the reader through questions and points for us to personally reflect upon. And some of the language in the book is poetic and and arresting. And with concepts that may challenge some. So having said all that, 
How do you characterize the book? Well, thank you. And um, I love hearing that it felt like we were sort of having a conversation in reading it. Well, first of all, I have huge appreciation for people who were born to be authors, because until writing this little book, I had thought it might be easier to figure out how to describe things that I have always felt were important, but often lived on the edges of the more typical conversations. So part of the impetus to write the book was to describe not only a different way of living in the world that I think is quite familiar to people, but particularly in our modern way of life, we forget. So a lot of my work has been calling people back to remembering a way of living that is bone deep. And, and I mean that both literally and metaphorically. And to also be a bridge to the current concepts of leadership, which for me are not super helpful. And I think actually are being challenged left, right, and center in these days from all angles. People are feeling there's a more collective way we're supposed to be doing things. And the book is pointing towards that, that we're in this life together. We're on this planet together. And there's a way of living that remembers that and honors it. So in essence, that's the core of the book. And it's interesting to use a term like leadership flow, because the minute people see it, they think, oh, well, I'm not a leader, i.e. what a formal leader. So it's probably not for me. And uh, it's for everybody, because in my experience, we're all leaders. And the point is to, to remember that and to bring our gifts specifically. Yeah. And that is what struck me about the book is that, you know, the title would make you think, oh, this is for a lot of your clientele that you've worked with, actually, you know, mm -hmm. in big organizations and dealing with people who manage um, big enterprises and stuff. But in the terms in which you speak about it, it really is that internal leadership that we even need in our own solitary lives to make decisions. And something else that I think you emphasize in the book, the connections also in the title, but that we are not alone. Yep. The, these concepts really can fortify ourselves, whether we think of ourselves as alone or in part of a, a big community. You know, when you talk about the intelligence of, of nature, <laughs> and that we all have a part, and that we are each important elements on this incredible planet we call home. And is this also some of what you're talking about? We've gotten away from that kind of understanding of even who we are as humans. Oh, very much so, which is why the book ended up being organized around an indigenous image, the, the seven directions, which is the image itself and the wisdom of those various kinds of intelligence, you could say, has, has been central to indigenous traditions around the world. And they are the keepers of this awareness you were just speaking of, that we are an integral part of the web of life. And they have held that and they continue to hold that, I call it an awareness. And in the societies that we have created in the last 
uh, pick a number. You could say several hundred years, a thousand years. I mean, um, there's many things that have caused separation. What I feel is fundamental separation between an innate knowing of what it means to be human in a living ecosystem, which is all the rest of creation. So the language definitely, for some people, they know that, they kind of live that way. For a book about <laughs> leadership, and that's one of the reasons why I actually loved and hated writing it, because um, a lot of the leadership language is completely divorced from that idea of a living universe. And it also tends to be quite divorced from the deeper uh, notions of spirituality, not religious based, but that there's a lot of unseen and invisible dimensions that are palpable and real. And there isn't a kid born in the universe that doesn't know that. They know with as a four-year-old and they walk into a mm -hmm. room and their parents have had a fight, mm -hmm. they, <laughs> they can feel it. And when I talk about spirituality, I'm talking about almost even those simple kinds of things, the atmosphere in a room you know, it's why people go to nature and they somehow instinctively begin to feel better because they're being bathed in an environment that's still got some coherence to it and some harmony. So yes, it's forgotten wisdom, mm -hmm. except for many people seek it out in pieces. And the book was an attempt to kind of bring, I think, what are perceptions in many people sort of together in one place to ponder and wonder how their lives are connected in certain ways and then disconnected in others. You use a term or a phrase that stuck out to me, a vast matrix of intelligence. And this intelligence of cosmic intelligence, our planetary intelligence, the intelligence of our, our living systems that we have forgotten how to tap into, yet having a craving for. And mm -hmm. you worked for a long time with um, programs that brought people into nature. And I wonder if, if you saw amazing transformations through those experiences. I'm sure you did. Yeah, absolutely. I took people out for many different lengths of time from, you know, three days to 10 days to a month to three months. You know, the programs were vast in their length of time in the outdoors and often in very remote places. And people would reconnect with a very deep sense of their own resilience, of the community, not only their hum human community, but the, the, the larger web of life. The challenge that I witnessed was often, as soon as they would get back to a more modern or contemporary environment, they would forget and lose the aliveness that came forward in the natural setting. And that's also one of the things that began to really perplex me. It's like, how do you actually help people keep themselves fully alive in our modern context? And it is not easy. It is deliberate. You have to be courageous. You have to unplug, in my experience, to actually stay fully alive. And what I most beautifully witnessed is when people went into the outdoor and more natural environment, they would come back to a, a deep well of themselves, which was also connected to a sense of a sort of relaxation, a sense of joy, a sense of strength, all those things. 
And that it's almost for some like when you are in deliberately in a natural environment that that is divorced from our pavement world. But to some, that might seem the anomaly versus the structure that we've placed in ourselves in our working lives or whatever. Well, and I think for many, it is the anomaly. And for those who are super unfamiliar with it, it's very scary. And what was interesting to me, having worked again in so many different contexts, you know, India, South Africa, bringing a lot of people in the U.S. who weren't familiar with that environment, was surprising that it didn't take that long to have something else start to percolate. And this was the beauty of these programs like Outward Bound, you know, where you had 16 to 18-year-olds who were out for a month. And, you know, the first week or so, they're complaining, you know, I hate this and the food and it's too much work. And by the end of the 28 or 30 days, they were so full of themselves, they could hardly stand yeah. in the best sense of that word. I want to pick up on two things that you said that I also thought were pretty important in the book. You brought up the term resiliency, and this is a, a term we use when we're, say, talking about forest management and other aspects of the mm -hmm. natural world. But we don't always see ourselves as really part of that larger resiliency, or maybe sometimes people don't even feel that they are capable of it in their own lives yet. This seemed like a very big concept uh, in the book, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about resiliency. This is great. There's uh, the book, hopefully, uh, it takes ideas like resiliency, and if you listen and really meditate on your own experience, it, there's like echoes that will go on for a long time. For instance, one of the angles on resiliency, I talk about your phys just purely your physical body, your physical body, and how healthy is it? How well rested are you? I mean, it's amazing the number of people I've coached over the years who are need to make very big decisions about things and they're exhausted. They, you know, they're running on what I would call fumes just sort of physically. And they wonder why sometimes it's hard to get clear about a direction. And it's simply because they're physically tired. And, you know, the research is, is massive about taking care physically in terms of being able to have emotional intelligence so that your emotions aren't, and God bless, you know, I think all mothers should be sainted, fathers too. You know, there's nothing like having little kids and trying to be patient, and yet you're so tired, you just can't be, you know? That's superhuman. You're human, and when you're tired, your emotional fuse is short. And that it's something we maybe have more control over than we actually think we do. Uh, to live in a way that creates resilience, that keeps you healthy that allows you to bring your contribution to the world in a thoughtful way, it takes a huge amount of actually deliberate choice making. And pace is a huge piece of that. You know, as a, as a high altitude mountaineer, the mantra was keep a pace, you can walk all day. That's how you get to the top of a high mountain. You don't sprint and then sit and then sprint and then sit. You find a pace that you can keep all day. 
because you got a long way to go. And the problem is coming down is even more dangerous. And it's true of work. Our, our world brings everything into like seconds or minutes. And we are meant to think in much longer arcs of time and to, to be thoughtful about how we use the time we have. And that takes a huge amount of not only deliberateness, but courage, because it will feel like when you really do some of the things that I describe in the book, you will feel like you're going against a very big current, which is the momentum of, of most mainstream living, because you are actually. <laughs> and yet there's a huge part of the human body, mind, and spirit, and heart that doesn't operate on fast. It actually operates on uh, slow or stop or pause even, just plain old pause for a minute or two. And that is the uh, kind of other thing I did want to follow up with you on is be still and wait, be quiet. You and many people are following you in this of having a day of silence. And we often are filling ourselves, uh, even if we are silent, with input of others. Yet there's something about shutting it down a little bit that opens up the ability to see deeper within ourselves. So could you talk a little yeah. bit about that and about your own practice? Sure. Yeah, there's a, there's a quote in the book, you know, Pascal, the 16th century mathematician, has a, a quote about all of humanity's problems issue from men and women's inability to sit quietly and alone. And I love that from the standpoint of it can be scary to stop. And I think this is why a lot of people don't do it. It's because if you slow down enough and actually pause and are willing to begin to listen to yourself in an honest way, you may have to do things that are a little scary. To make changes in your life that you haven't wanted to admit you really needed to do. So I think a lot of times people don't pause because they're afraid of what they might find out if they do. And this, so I, I ended up with my own uh, monthly day of silence <laughs> through the wonderful gift from the universe of a little book called Listening Below the Noise, which I picked up just because I was in a bookstore and I saw it and I thought, oh, that's light and I'll stick that in my briefcase because I was traveling a lot. And I went to open up the book and every time I opened it up and started to read the book, I would, I just would start to cry this unbelievable sense of whoa what is that emotion it surprised me and shocked me so I closed the book it took me about I don't know six months nine months a year before I finally was sort of in a spot and I thought okay I'm, I'm at home <laughs> nobody's looking I'm gonna open this thing up and actually read it and I let the tears that started to flow speak to me and what they simply said was you are not hearing your deeper self. You have got to stop and you have got to start listening to yourself in a very different way here. And the way that the woman, Anne LeClaire, she took every other Monday as a day of silence. And the book is, you can feel when you read the pages, 
the transformative quality of having that practice of silence. So I thought, okay, what the heck? I'm going to do that. And I tell you, the first month or two or even six, you know, I had trepidation going into that day, like, well, what if somebody talks to me or, you know, now, 12 years later, I crave it. I can't wait. I love it. There's no anxiety. But the first six to nine months, I felt a little anxious every time I did it until the practice got in my cells and I, I had a much deeper wellspring of that energy in myself now. Just in, in talking about this silence as I'm listening to you also gets back to this notion of spirituality that you use the term spirituality in the book without ever even broaching any suggestion of religion and not using that kind of language. I think that that in itself for some is a challenging pursuit to identify spirituality outside of that kind of language of religion. Yes. And for me, there's so many different ways to what I believe spiritual practice is pointing to. I remember when I worked at Regis, there was a woman who was my main go-to. She just like ran the whole Masters of Nonprofit Management Department. Her name was Wanda. She would go to mass every morning, like 5.30 a.m. before she came to work. And she opened my eyes because what that practice for her took her to the same place that my practice that never, I, I don't go into a formal church. I've never been drawn to that. My church is more an outdoor experience or some, you know, there's different places where I've felt very deep connection to this, this um, larger whole, the fact that you're being supported, that you're not alone. And Wanda showed me that with a quality of open heart and intention, any path will take you there in the same way that people use a lot of spiritual language to completely fragment and divide, which isn't, in my experience, what the truth of the path is pointing to. So I think you can end up in a very deeply connected, intelligent place through almost any path, depending on how it lives in you and how you practice it into the world. And certain paths and languages work better for people. And as I, there's a place where I, the reason um, about this larger intelligence is because I feel like a lot of modern day spirituality, if you divorce it from service to the whole, is just, is completely useless. It's, it's, you know, the phrase, whatever, navel gazing, it's, it's all about you and not about the whole and how you contribute to the whole and how you listen and do things sometimes that you don't even, you know, you don't quote want to do, but the universe is calling you to do. So you get over yourself and you do it, you know, because that's for me, what the truth of spirituality is. We have a gift and the gift is meant to be used in service of the whole. And if we're throwing a tantrum because we don't want to put our big boots on and do something that we are obviously being asked to do, then like just grow up and, you know, contribute. <laughs> so that those are a few thoughts on, for me, the core of spirituality, which also involves being 
wholly present in the now. That's the only place you ever can hear Yes. Uh, what you need to hear. Be here now is true. And every tradition I know at the heart has these same kinds of principles in it at the heart. There's so much I want to talk to you about, but we're rapidly running out of time. But there are times in the book where you do kind of say, put on your shoes, become an adult, is what you say. And you talk about elders. These are people who bear equanimity, understanding and wisdom. And conflicts and, and causes are resolved through a sort of transparency. And it seems to me that that's something we definitely could use more (laughs) of. And here we've elected a president who is, we might consider him an elder, I would consider him Mm -hmm. an elder. And Mm -hmm. yet there seems to be something people are afraid of in that in our modern culture. Yeah. So one of the things that is so striking to me is that we don't know how to grow adults. I mean, this was what Mr. Rogers used to be teaching kids that they need to have their emotions. They just need to know what to do with them. We don't teach people anymore how to become an actual adult. Like, what do you do with your heart when you're feeling all this stuff and with a mind that's out of control and going down rabbit holes? You know, you don't get taught any of that. So how can you become a mature adult unless somebody helps you figure that out? And if you become a mature adult, in my view, you see the incredible wisdom of people who are your elders and you respect them. And again, this is so clear in indigenous traditions. They knew the wisdom and the power of people who've been here. I mean, I'm 63 and I sure am heck a whole lot wiser than I was at 32. And at 32, I thought I knew it all, you know, and (laughs) so the truth of honoring elders and growing that energy in yourself. So when you physically start to slow down, you don't equate physical slowing down with a diminishment of your power. It is the opposite. Your power gets bigger and you simply need to use it more deliberately, in my view. Perry Chickering, the book is Leadership Flow, The Unstoppable Power of Connection. Thank you so much. Thank you, Suzanne. It's been a real pleasure. The organizational structure of the book, Leadership Flow, The Unstoppable Power of Connection, is based on the concept and iconic image of the seven directions, an indigenous people's concept. So Perry decided she could not accept any proceeds from the sales of the book, all of which are going to First Nation causes. Also, I want to repeat a book that influenced her. She mentioned it Listening Below the Noise by Anne LeClaire. I am Suzanne Lang, and this is KRCB's A Novel Idea. Today, we explore the many paths individuals can take to publish a book and to make significant changes in our lives. Sometimes that is home, a career, and sometimes it's a partner. Carolyn Lee Arnold had a thriving career in academic research, a fairly robust social life, hiked and traveled all over the world, but in her 50s, wanted to find a life partner. 50 First Dates After 50 is her memoir of that journey. Let's listen to our conversation. Some may think this uh, might be a formulaic book about 
finding a man or a kind of light story as the title might suggest. But in fact, this book might blow some people's minds, Mm -hmm. especially (laughs) if they were expecting a, a little lighter read. The book contains frank talk about polyamory, having multiple sex partners and relationships outside of marriage or monogamy, sex parties, and your attendance at uh, and participation in personal growth workshops. Mm-hmm. You describe your own sexual experiences with a real warmth. And, and while the writing is not necessarily erotic, you are fairly explicit. So mm-hmm. tell us about your background and lifestyle that mm-hmm. led you on this quest and, and brought you to write this memoir. You know, my memoir is really, in a way, two memoirs in one. In one sense, it's just a regular dating book. When I started writing it, it's like, wow, I had a really, I had fun dating. And most older women don't have fun dating. And I feel like I picked up a lot of tips about how to make dating more enjoyable, more self-loving, less discouraging, and more more self-reflective and more learning about yourself kind of a project. So I really wanted to share that. I am in this milieu in the Bay Area of people who are more open with sexual, sexually. I call it, I think of it as just sex positive. And I came to that from probably 20 years, starting with the living in Berkeley in 1970s, you know, with sexuality being pretty open. And we, we were all discovering that in the 70s, in our 20s. And um, I worked at the Berkeley Women's Health Collective, and we were doing self-help examinations of each other and learning about our vaginas and everything and and our sexual expression and and we were talking about it and experimenting with each other and it was a very open time and that's how I started my young adulthood in Berkeley so I actually spent 18 years identifying as a lesbian because the lesbian community was so exciting and cutting edge and we had music and we had political work and we had philosophy and we had women's studies and and I was in women's studies at San Francisco State and so there was just a lot of burgeoning um, opening and explorations and feeling like we were on the cutting edge of creating a culture and really of course feminism was meant to be a culture that included everyone men and women and kind of a culture that that let everyone express who they really were so I was just used to being in that questioning role. Eventually, then you, as uh, uh, identifying yourself as bisexual, you decided to have male partners. Right. I eventually got back to men um, because in my 40s, I kind of, I I never found the right woman. I had this image of a woman partner I wanted and I never found her, uh, although I had wonderful women partners along the way. Um, and so I, I realized I was still attracted to men and I started, and men were much more interesting in my forties. So I was really eager to, to find a male partner and I tried and tried and I, my pattern, my whole life was just relationships that lasted one or two years. And that still continued. It continued with women and it continued with men. So I realized I really need some help in terms of how, how could I get better at relationships? And so I was very lucky to be living in Northern California and hearing about the Human Awareness Institute, which had, guess what, workshops on relationships, on how to have better relationships. They called them the workshops on love, intimacy, and sexuality. And I had been sexual, of course, the last 20 years until I found these workshops, but what I needed to work on was intimacy and and love and and how to make that last and really how to be uh, close to people. And so I started those workshops in my late 40s 
And it changed my life. It changed my life because I learned really great communication skills, how to share openly with people about my feelings, how to accept other people. A, a, lot, a big part of those workshops are how to look for the goodness in people and look for the best in people. And while you're looking for the best in them, they're looking for the best in you. So you have this experience of being appreciated and loved. And I developed a lot of more self-esteem there and a confidence in myself and who I was. And I was able to appreciate other people. So I went to those workshops and then I started helping with them and um, for about 10 years before I got to the dating project. The Human Awareness Institute, or HI, as it's referred to, is really a big part in your story, but it's not necessarily being free sexually that you were striving for in your life as much as being able to be intimate. And I wonder mm -hmm. if you can maybe even talk a little bit about how you mm -hmm. see the difference between being sexually adventurous or sex positive, but maybe not having developed those intimacy skills that help build strong relationships. For most people, that idea, are they're connected. When we're sexual, we are intimate. It's kind of equated. And by intimacy, I really do mean sharing emotionally and really opening up to who I am inside. What, what are my insides? The good inside, the insides that I feel good about. And what about the parts that I don't feel so good about? And what happens when someone sees that? And how can I accept myself and how can they accept myself? That's basically what I think intimacy is, being accepting of ourselves and others at a deep level and being willing to hear but both the happy parts of life and the sad parts of life and the painful parts of life and really being able to be present with each other. It's a, it's a presence. I think a lot of people are that way when they're sexual. And then if you add sex to that, you can also have that physical connection as well as the emotional connection, which is wonderful when that happens. Um, I, since I had a lot of experience with sexuality in my 20s and 30s and 40s, I have found I could be enjoy sex just for the sex, which is I don't mean to say that the just is not to, I don't want to diminish the just, but you know, sex can be powerful and spiritual and intimate and emotional. It can also just be a wonderful, fun way to share energy with people. And so as someone who spent a lot of, had a lot of sexual relationships, I can do either. And I realize not everybody can, that's hard for people to do that. There's a sexual Sometimes, you know, we were taught, and I've certainly had that too, of sometimes when I'm sexual, that means that I'm intimate and close and I can't separate them, but I can, but I also can. And so I realized that in my memoir, there are many instances where I'm being sexual with people where I'm not being that intimate, I think, and probably, I'm not sure, I, I realize everybody can't relate to that. They can't see themselves in that. But what I'm hoping is that the general journey that I took of how to relate to people and how to try to become close to people in different ways and trying to, and my whole point of my memoir is how do you sort out who you would like to be close to on an intimate level, on a sexual level, and on a spiritual level, maybe, how do you sort that out for yourself? And I guess I see it as a kind of a, not a path for everybody to follow, definitely. I'm not saying everybody should look at my book as a model for how, how they should have a partner, the kind of partner or dating, but as a, as a kind of a path, as a, an encouragement for them to explore whatever they need to explore, all the different things they could do to try to sort out having what they would need in a partnership. 
in your memoir, you are dating people and some of them you're sleeping with, some of them you're not, and you're well into it, but you're still sort of pondering this nature of what kind of partner that you want, and you're grappling with your own independence and how this shaped Mm -hmm. you. And at one point, you even suggest that maybe men don't find you attractive as a life partner, and and you go through maybe a, a bout of wondering why is this so difficult. And I think that that's probably an experience many women shared who maybe have not been on mm-hmm. on that structured path of of dating, but that's been their life experience. So I'm wondering if you could address that issue of of wondering, well, what's wrong with us? So talk about that a little bit. Definitely, I definitely have that. Well, that it's so easy to get into that in dating because if someone either doesn't look at us right or doesn't call us back, like I put out an online ad and hardly anyone answered. And I had to give myself a good talking to about, well, Carolyn, you were very specific about what you wanted. Um, I, yeah, I think we all, you know, as women in the society, we, we, we are always comparing ourselves with someone else and coming up short. And so it's so easy to fall into that. I'm not good enough. Something's wrong with me. And we just, I think we all have that to a certain degree. And the only way that I found to counteract that is to be part of a loving community. Um, and have loving friends and be with people who are know how to be loving and supportive. One of my main recommendations for dating is to love yourself, but not love yourself in a vacuum. We can't, I could never do that. I needed to come into a community and first it was the lesbian community and then later it was the high community of people who appreciated me and to have that reflected back. So I think one of the important things of Um, skills of dating is to surround yourself with people who are supporting you, friends, um, if if you want other lovers, um, your family, anyone who's positive about you, and that you spend enough time with them to make sure you have that, that you know that. I mean, I think we need external input to keep ourselves up and loving ourselves. So part of it also is within that context of community and For some women, for some people, it might be a different sort of community, but it still is that group of people. But you put yourself out there and let them know that, yeah, I'm looking to be in a relationship. And so it's not like you were doing this and not talking about it. And so you put word out there and sometimes you met people who were part of that community or connections to that community. And as you mentioned that you also tried dating sites. So maybe talk about the difference in that. And you know, when we even use the term dating today, it seems to connote not not necessarily just going to dinner and a movie, but um, having sex as well. So talk a little bit about that. I just, well, I just want to say about dating sites. I only had a, only about five of my dates were from dating sites and they all seemed like they would be great matches. And then when in person we met and a few things, either they didn't think I was a match or I didn't think they were a match. You know, dating is a numbers game. It's just a numbers game there. I, I really believe there's a, the, a, the right person. If you want a partner, there is someone out there for you and you just have to 
put yourself, you just have, what's your pool of people you can choose from? That's what I was doing. That's why I had a goal of 50 dates. I just said, I think 50 would be enough to see if what type of men I would be like and maybe find someone. I was actually going to go farther than 50 if I hadn't found him by 50 because I actually was enjoying the process. It's a numbers game. So you have to find that community. And I also, I just wanted to say, I don't think everybody has to go to the Human Awareness Institute to, to, great, to learn great relationship skills. There are many organizations that teach different communication and relationship skills. And I do recommend them because what greater pool of men to look for than men who've, who have chosen to go into a workshop on improving their relationships? I mean, I just yes. think that's a high quality group of men if you're looking for a male partner. But, but then there's other things. I, mean, I did other things. I, you know, I just recommend doing the, the things you like to do. For me, it was hiking. So I did Sierra Club singles groups and, and going to a spiritual retreat center and doing their singles nights. Carolyn, um, you mentioned that this is a numbers, numbers game and you mm-hmm. have worked professionally <laughs> with statistics as a yeah. statistician. And I wonder right. if you had built some, some sort of attribute table or to catalog the qualities you knew you needed to be happy with a partner, because uh-huh. it, it sounds like you're, you, you know, with these 50 uh, dates that you weren't necessarily th- thinking oh, the next person is going to be my partner. You were looking like, what is it that I really even want? And sometimes you would get that information from different men that you went out with. But I guess as a person who also is interested in in statistics and Mm -hmm. analysis, I kind of wondered if you had a kind of formalized process for yourself, or at (laughs) least a diary. But I thought a spreadsheet maybe you had. (laughs) Great question. Um, I did not have a spreadsheet. I did have a list because I was counting the dates. Uh, I just had a list. But um, all the spreadsheets came later when I was writing the memoir. (laughs) But but here's my research perspective on it. I had two. The, I am a social science researcher, trained as a trained statistician. And my first thought, as I was contemplating the project, was how many men would I need to go out with? I, um, I, I haven't mentioned that I was uh, I was trying to get over my uh, the first bo- long term boyfriend I had. I had a seven year relationship with someone I really loved. We couldn't be together because we had different lifestyles. And I, I needed to get over him and find someone else. So how many people would that take? And then I remembered the movie 50 First Dates. And I thought 50, that might be good. And then as a statistician, 50 is a, a number in which you can get significant results from. You know, it was a little not quite applicable, but it was, it, it was because it felt like that's a good substantial number. And so that, and I'm, since I'm quantitative, I like the idea of counting and trying to, trying to get to a goal and things like that. However, one type of research would be if I had said, I want a smart um, businessman. And then, you know, you, you get your, you put your theory out and then you test it and you find the results. But I didn't do that because I needed it to be more exploratory. The other type of research is when it's, you just open yourself up to all the data and you let the data tell you what is the situation. So I definitely saw the collecting information about who my partner might be was exploratory. So I did not have a list at first. I mean, I, I kind of had qualities in my head, but I did not write a list. I just said, let me try to go out with different types of men because I need to see what types that I would be interested in now that I have all these relationship skills, um, but I'm afraid I might be focused on the same type of man I used to be with. I wanted to 
broaden my horizons. So I, it really helped to have this goal of 50 and to be looking at it more as a research project than as, is this person the one? Because instead of, is this person the one? It was, what did I learn from each person about what I want and who I am in relationship? So I was collecting that kind of data and that, that was the data I was collecting. And you're right, into my 40s, into the, the, uh, the high 40s of this project, I was still wondering what was my balance of um, freedom and independence and closeness and, and apartness. I was realizing I've been single all my life. And so I was used to being independent and how was I gonna be in a close relationship? I mean, um, so I was really trying, grappling with that and trying a lot of different things. And I, um, I could go, I, we could talk about visioning cause I, I ended, I did end up with a kind of a list and a vision that did help me in the end, but it emerged, it emerged. So you, during this process, um, you did go into it with an open heart. And there were some times when things didn't work out and you were kind of heartbroken then, but yet you moved through these experiences. And it seemed like that was almost a necessary part of your own emotional growth or, or um, kind of getting to know what you needed. Um, mm -hmm. So it, it wasn't without its hard moments. The funny thing, it's true. I, I felt um, someone who read my book early on said, you're crying. You cry a lot in this book. Yes. <laughs> and, and, I, and I had to pull back on some of the crying scenes. But um, I did get, I, I feel like I got my heart broken a few times. I was sad a few times. I was lonely a few times. But I had really good ways of taking care of myself. And I put them in the book. I mean, it's either I wrote a note to myself. I reach out to my friends, either on email or by phone. I cuddle on the couch with my then cat. Um, and watch friends. <laughs> I, there were lots of little things that comforted me. I write in my journal. Um, I was writing in my journal for this whole period, mainly to support myself, to, to write out what happened on these dates. And luckily, that's what I, I didn't know I was going to write a memoir. But so when I got to the end, though, I had all these dates written out mostly. And, and I just want to say when I read the book, when I, as I was going through the dating project, I felt like I was mostly having fun. And it was only when I had written it all down and read it over, I thought, oh, my God, I got hurt and rejected a lot here. <laughs> I really did. And I didn't notice it as much because I had that goal of 50, because what I could I could pick myself up and go, well, I'm going to go on to the next one now. It really helped to not put all my eggs in one basket of one person and then get discouraged and stop. That's what you know, I think that's what stops older women from dating, that being hurt and then not seeing a way out and not not just not wanting to get back in again. But since I had this plan that I had to get to 50, it made me keep going. And I think that saved me, really. I'm talking with Carolyn Lee Arnold. The book is 50 First Dates After 50. Carolyn, I, I'm wondering what you hope readers will gain from mm -hmm. your story. Two things, or three, really. I hope they see a lot of different ways to take care of ourselves while we're dating. I started out thinking this is just a simple dating book, a kind of ways to take care, to love yourself, to nurture yourself, to keep going when you're dating, because again, it's a numbers game and and you just have to keep going until you find your person. That that really is, is it. What it's what it's about. Um, so in one sense, it's a simple 
here's some tools that you could use. Not everything, you don't have to do everything I did at all, but some things like have a, you could have a goal of a number, a goal, or you could have a, a time period. Like I'm just gonna do this for a year and then take a break or something like that. Just a way to keep going. So in a way it's that. And then in terms of the fact that there's a lot of um, new age, sex positive scenes in there, I kept all those in because I wanted to validate those of us who are sexual and older, older women who are or want to be sexual and expressive and living our lives that way. And I wanted to validate that that was a positive thing and that other women do that. And so oh, oh, one more thing is, you know, since I was in my milieu of my kind of personal growth workshops and spiritual ceremonies and sex positive groups, I almost couldn't see it. When I started writing this memoir, I thought, well, I'm just writing this great dating book to, to, to encourage women to have fun dating. And I didn't realize that I was going to have to be a chronicler of my community. <laughs> and so one thing I describe a lot is some spiritual ceremonies that I was in that was part of the dating and meeting people and being with people. And I didn't expect to have to do that, but I, I was kind of a reluctant chronicler of that. Mm -hmm. But I'm glad I did because I feel like I want people to know that that's an option for people, that there are people in the world who do those kinds of things on Saturday nights rather than watch football or, or go to just go to a movie. Carolyn, I want to thank you so much for talking to us today. And is there anything else you want to leave us with? Just encouragement for older women um, who who would like a partner that, that they can they can find somebody if they want and uh, yeah and that you're living the life that you like to live along the way doing the things you like to do wonderful wonderful carolyn lee arnold thank you so much thank you suzanne great to talk to you carolyn lee arnold who did find a partner through her process i believe he was number 49 with whom she has been for the past 10 years 51st Dates After 50, a memoir. All of our guests today have said there are many paths to fulfillment, and I've encountered another author, also published by She Writes Press, who exposes her journey of not only dating later in life after the death of her spouse, but in doing and getting what she wanted in the way of experience. Sally H. Weisinger's Yes Again, Misadventures of a Wishful Thinker. She Writes Press features many authors across the spectrum of nonfiction and fiction genres. Check them out at SheWritesPress.com. Check us out at krcb.org, where you can listen to us streaming or subscribe to the podcast. Listen anytime and access past shows. Thanks to all my guests today, and I thank James Morey and Mark Brell for production assistance. I am Suzanne Lang and bring you a novel idea the first and fifth Sunday, live at 10 a.m., streaming and podcasting at krcb.org. We are a production of Lit Radio and Northern California Public Media. Thank you for listening. It's a novel idea.